This Limitless Mindset podcast is about how I did business with insane people. Four stories of psychopathy, ego, and ambition. That's right, this is going to be a little bit different. I've had some entrepreneurial experiences that I listened to all these entrepreneurship podcasts and some of the things I've experienced, I, I think are a little bit unique. So hopefully you'll find some informative uh, and perhaps counterintuitive things that I have to say about it. But I'd like to begin with a question from a Mr. S. He said, Jonathan, just watched your video on oxyracetam. I love it. I will order it from your affiliate link so you get credit for it. Thanks, Mr. S. What can I stack that with? I'm already stacking a bunch of pills throughout the day. I take Adderall with Chinese herb in the morning, brain octane with breakfast, and paracetam with choline, then tribulus terrestris, and then repeat all that in the afternoon. Where can I squeeze in the oxyracetam? Okay, let me address that question first because that's a pretty good question. So oxyracetam has a whole lot subtler effect than the other things you're taking, especially Adderall with Chinese herbs. That's the first time I've heard of that particular combination. And part of me almost wants to dissuade you from taking a lot of stimulants together because they're going to create very confounding effects. You're not really going to be sure what's giving you all that energy, especially in the case of Adderall. Adderall can be a bit of a double-edged sword. For people that truly have ADHD, it can be a great way of balancing a chemical imbalance, but for a lot of people, Adderall is just a is just an overkill as a stimulant. And I would almost venture to say that by doing Adderall with other things, you're not really experience, you're not really going to experience the performance enhancement benefit that the other things could imbue. So my suggestion would be to actually try oxyracetam alone without anything else and figure out what it feels like to you, figure out what the benefit is that oxyracetam offers, and then try stacking it with one or two other things at a time. I'm just not that big a fan of taking like 10 different things at a time. Let's get into the main topic of this podcast. Four stories of psychopathy, ego, and ambition. The word insane is drastically overused for everything from mild moodiness and irritability to emotional changes. That's not what this article is about, though. These are four stories of times I did business with people who were unwell psychologically. Sometimes I ask myself whether it's a degree of insanity within myself that has attracted these people and circumstances, or whether it's just a matter of dumb luck 
that I've been quite intimately ensconced in business four separate times with people varying from unstable addicts to genuinely demented. And I'm leaning more towards the former explanation than the latter in that. In addition to being entertaining, I hope that these stories can educate you on how to identify the telltale signs of insanity in the charming, persuasive people you are considering doing business with. So the first was Dan, and Dan was my best friend for four years. Towards the end of that time, it became increasingly evident that he was a nonviolent, high-functioning psychopath. Dan was on the path to become a doctor. He was incredibly hardworking and more devoted to his studies than any other college student I've ever known. Dan, at any given time, had at least one woman intensely in love with him, and he had to pay for abortions at least three times that he told me about. To this day, he remains the most charming person I've ever met. Dan partied. He loved nightclubs, bottle service, cocaine, and occasionally smoking crystal meth. He had a contagious ability to energize any room. Dan had a disturbing amount of confidence in his ability to drive drunk. He would barely able to walk, drive his truck aggressively all the way across town. I remember watching Dan getting caught with cocaine in a nightclub bathroom and then proceeding to successfully convince the police it was not his. He had an uncanny talent for getting drugs for free from gay guys. I remember several nights going to hang out in seedy apartments so he could score drugs for free. It was pretty weird. The only other passion that matched his appetite for intoxicants was his religiosity. He came from an intensely religious Mormon family who I knew well. They were some of the classiest, most generous people I've ever known. Sometimes, in a drunken fervor, he would explain to me how he would one day, he was going to become a god of his own earth. This was, this is part of the Mormon religion, a lot of you know. And he had the weirdest duality of outlook on the world and of his self. People in that religion... They, they believe that eventually they're going to go through like this transcendent process over many lives and they're going to become gods of their own earth at the end of that transcendent process. But they believe that if they do more bad than good in their current life, then in the consecutive lives, they're going to get reincarnated as something less. So a person who was very wicked would be reincarnated as like an ant or something. And a person who was very good would get reincarnated as like, I don't know, the son or daughter of like a, uh, an elder of the church or something like that. And this friend of mine, Dan, his parents, he, 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 he had a fairly privileged life. His parents were real successful business people. They were high up in the church. And so he had this outlook of, it, wow, in my previous lives, I must have done all these things right to get reincarnated 
with the opportunities I have now, but now I'm fucking everything up and making all these mistakes, living hedonistically, so I'm going to regress. And he had a, a really weird guilt about that, that honestly, I probably let him unload way too much of that on me than I should have. Okay, when I decided to enter the entertainment business at age 21 by organizing my first concert, Dan was my partner. The last time I saw Dan, he actually walked in on me having sex with a woman I had just met who had been admiring the brand new Maserati I was driving that night. The most insane moment with Dan was one night he stole and took on a joyride a tuner sports car during a house party. When he returned, the car's owner, drunk on tequila, ripped him out of the driver's seat and beat him up. Then Dan had to go hide in a room of the house with some girls while I tried to convince the very drunk owner of the car not to kill him. So the next story is Ed. And Ed was a former banker, supposedly worth $12 million, diagnosed with disassociative identity disorder, also known as multiple personality syndrome. He was the financier of an entertainment startup that I worked for when I was about 22, 23 years old. Early in my career in the entertainment business, a friend called me and told me excitedly that he had found an investor who would finance whatever we wanted to do. Concerts, nightclubs, clothing lines, football stadium events, etc. We, we basically had a, a financier with just a blank check backing up whatever our entrepreneurial aspirations were, which as a 22-year-old young man, that was, <laughs> I can't imagine anything more exciting that, someone, that I could have experienced at that age. They hired me as the second employee of the company and paid me $35 hourly, which was, which was quite good uh, at the time, especially for someone who had no college degree, to organize event marketing strategies and network with potential strategic partners, aka do a lot of partying, a lot of buying of drinks, a lot of handing out of business cards. Ed had a beautifully codependent relationship with my friend who is the CEO of the startup. He gave Ed's darker sides, continuous excuses to blow his money frivolously. For example, one week they showed up with a Cadillac Escalade on really, uh, with, with really conspicuous 22-inch rims. Next week, a brand new Mercedes-Benz SLK 350. Then there was a brand new Maserati Gran Turismo from Ferrari of Denver. They also sent me on all-expense-paid trips to Scottsdale and Cancun, Mexico. So Ed took medication and saw a shrink to deal with his demons. What seemed to trigger Ed's other personalities most consistently was drinking alcohol. One of his personalities was a woman, one was gay, and one was a reckless young man who just wanted to get drunk and laid all the time. 
His personalities had a clever method for communicating with each other. They would call his cell phone's voicemail and leave each, other's leave each other messages, actually. After several months of this spending, in an uncommon display of maturity and sobriety for a very young man living like a rock star, I wrote a formal letter to Ed and the CEO stating my serious concern with the spending before the business had made a cent of profit. And their response was a demotion. Eventually, we ended up throwing a single event at the Denver Broncos football stadium, and it lost probably about $15,000. And after that, I resigned from my position. The most insane moment was after a night of drinking, Ed's most malignant personality emerged while he was driving the company car, a black two-seater Mercedes convertible with the CEO. The personality announced to the CEO that he was going to kill him. He then proceeded to run a red light doing over 50 miles an hour and T-boned a sedan. Amazingly, he didn't kill anyone that day, but he did destroy an almost $70,000 car. The next story, William was a mild-mannered tech startup founder client of mine with a dark past. Early in my career operating a web strategy firm, I met a man with a pretty good idea for an e-commerce marketplace. I agreed to develop his online platform in exchange for a four-figure payment and a piece of equity in his startup. In retrospect, it was a, a very modest, small amount of money that I agreed to build his website for. I was, I was really quite naive at the time, looking back. In the beginning, he came across as very smart and easy to deal with. He told me that he had recently gone through a tough divorce. As is common in the startup development world, we ran into all kinds of technical challenges and delays. We actually ended up having to sue a third-party vendor. I remember picking up William at his dad's place for a long, awkward ride to the courthouse. About a year into the partnership, William had significantly changed the project scope of what he wanted the website to do, so he released me from my development responsibilities and had me focus on business development of future customers of the service, which I did building a list of over 100 potential future customers. I had a base of small business clients ready to use the service, but William was lost in a perpetual cycle of second guessing and redesigning the technical side of things. I urged William to simplify the development side so we could begin serving the clients and generating cash flow. He started making me all kinds of promises about increasing my equity, infusions of investment capital, licensing the business model in other countries, etc. He was kind of a weird guy. He never went out to socialize or date. He lived with his dad and was singularly focused on his startup. Out of the blue one day, a woman on Facebook wrote me 
notifying me of his history of domestic violence. Apparently, they had a kid together a long time ago, and he had done a bunch of weird stuff to her. She provided me with police and court records to verify everything. Then I did something I hadn't done up to this point. I Google searched my client, William. The top result for his name was a news story identifying him as the Craigslist stalker of Boulder of 2006 and other news stories of his weird and sometimes violent past. Five years later, his website isn't even up. I, I checked it recently. No investment capital ever arrived. The customers I gathered were never served. In business, William wasted a huge amount of my time, but I'm really just disappointed that this smart guy with such a good idea worked so hard and never made it happen. From this episode, I learned that a great idea counts for nothing. Even a great idea plus hard work is pretty useless without a clear way to scale into cash flow. I also learned to Google search the people I'm considering doing business with. Finally, and probably most importantly, I learned that the kind of character that mistreats women is the kind of broken person that will never produce consistent results in business. Next example, Joe. My business partner of a few years displayed frequent psychopathic tendencies. Joe should have had a revolving door installed on his bedroom. He was a classic womanizer. As opposed to embracing polyamory, he always had a girlfriend who was committed to him that he would cheat on at every opportunity. Joe had a need for speed. He was passionate about fast performance cars. He always had some kind of tuned up car that he drove like a demon. Joe had many redeeming qualities that made him a good business partner. Any business I introduced him to, he would learn fast and would do better than me. He was a master networker. He would find ways to catch the attention of people more successful than us and land them as clients. He had really high standards for the business and the quality of products and services we sold. As partners, he always made more money for the business than I did. Towards the end of our business partnership, we became roommates for a short time and he was abusive to me, his girlfriend, and our pets. I was astounded by his ability to not understand how his insanity made other people around him feel. The last time I saw him, we took a brand new BMW on a wild test drive through the foothills of Colorado. Joe now operates a successful printing business and a nightclub in Denver. Most insane moment with him. One night after seeing one of our favorite DJs at a nightclub, we got into an extended high-speed car chase. Joe was drunk driving his race car of a souped-up Honda Accord. He pulled into a restricted parking lot near the nightclub. Security guards approached the car. As opposed to apologizing, he screeched out of the parking lot. 
as he did, the security guards bashed out two of the windows of the car with their batons. He clipped the fender of another car as he tore out of the parking lot, attracting the attention of two vigilantes in a white Jeep who took up pursuit of us. We raced, we raced around the downtown area, running red lights, and eventually got on the highway. Now, usually one of Joe's cars could easily outrun a Jeep, but the transmission of his Accord was going out as a result of his high-speed habits. The guys in the Jeep kept trying to run us off the road. They were not cops. They were people, probably friends of the driver of the car we had hit and run, who wanted to do bad things to us. About 20 miles north of Denver, we finally lost them by taking an off-ramp and killing our lights simultaneously. It really was one of those episodes where I that I could die, that I was like, well, these people happen. But we managed to escape. So hopefully, you know, a lot of times you hear people in the entrepreneurship space talking about risk and how taking risks is the thing that defines an entrepreneur. That, that, that taking a risk is what defines your value. That, that risk is this source, is, is this thing you do, and if you're willing to take risks, then wealth, happiness, then, then that's the way of really getting what you want in life. And I've taken probably more risk than, than I should have. And in these four stories here, we see that taking risk, that doing business with people when there's red flags, it, it really doesn't pay off. In none of these episodes, in none of these relationships did I feel like the sides or the stress or the bodily harm that was that was potential in these situations. So hopefully these stories can be a little bit of a sobering account to balance out this fetishizing of risk that you hear so oftenly.